You're listening to BiblioAsia Plus, a podcast produced by the National Library of Singapore. At BiblioAsia, we tell stories about Singapore's past, some unfamiliar, others forgotten, all fascinating. Hi everyone, I'm Gek Han and I'm an editor of BiblioAsia, a publication by the National Library of Singapore. Today we are talking to Rachel King about her new novel, The Great Reclamation. This fascinating piece of historical fiction is set in Singapore and is a story of land reclamation and resettlement. It's also a love story. The book has been named a New York Times Editor's Choice and a Best Book of 2023 so far by The New Yorker and Amazon Books. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to BiblioAsia Plus. Hi, Yekhan. Thank you so much for having me here. No, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. Um, it's really thrilling to see a book set in Singapore, written by a local writer, getting such rave reviews worldwide and locally. How has it been like for you? Oh, it's been wonderful. I um, Yeah, I never dared to expect it, I guess. When I first started writing the book, um, maybe five or six years ago, I did, a part of me worried that no one would want to publish, let alone read a book that was, you know, essentially when I started writing it, I thought of it as a book about land reclamation in the 1960s in Singapore, which is, you know, quite a departure from my first book, which was speculative fiction, you know, it's a bit more flashy, you know, it has all these like sci-fi concepts. Um, and this was deep historical fiction, essentially, um, and very specifically Singaporean setting. Um, but thankfully, you know, it did, it did get published, obviously, and um, has received a pretty great response, both in Singapore as well as abroad. And the story seems to be pretty universal in some ways and has spoken to a wide, you know, wide cross-section of people across the world. I saw on Instagram you said that, exactly what I said just now, that you weren't sure if this book would be well-received. And it's clearly very beloved. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of book tours. Do you think there's been a difference between the local reception and the international ones? Um, I think it maybe there's definitely a difference in terms of the context and people, you know, having the context, right? Because when I do events here, I have to explain a lot less. So that's been really nice being able to do an event and not have to say, well, you know, Singapore's a really small country. And so because of that, land reclamation is, a th- you know, doing all the, everyone kind of comes into the room already with this knowledge and the same similar knowledge, similar um, experiences in some way that I had growing up. Um, and even intimidatingly, perhaps more knowledge than I have, right? Because there are often people from older generations there who have lived through this or have seen this or have experienced other parts of it that I personally have never experienced. So um, it's both intimidating and exhilarating because I get to speak to people who really get it, who really live through it. Um, and I've been very uh, grateful and heartened by the fact that it seems to ring true to a, lo- a lot of people here as well, which I, you know, that was what I set out to do when I started writing the book. I, I wanted it to be read widely and across the world, but my primary audience or the audience I had in mind when I was reading it was someone like myself or someone like the people I knew growing up and my friends and family. Yeah, that's great. Okay, before we get further, can I get you to tell us what the book is about? Oh, yes, certainly. Um, So The Great Reclamation is a book that's set in the 20 years before Singapore gains independence from the British. And it follows a young boy. When we meet him, he's seven years old and his name is Lee Abun. He's growing up on a um, in a kampong on the coast, the eastern coast of Singapore. Um, And through his life, we sort of see the 
the political and the physical changes that Singapore's going through in this time period filtered through his eyes. Um, and it's a coming-of-age story. I think of it as both coming-of-age of Abun as this young boy growing up and learning to find his place in the world, making decisions on who he wants to be, but also a coming-of-age story of Singapore itself as it kind of marches towards independence and has to make certain choices about you know the way that the country is going to be set up and built. Can you read us something from your book, please? So I'm going to read from right from the beginning um, of the book. So this is where it starts. Decades later, the kampong would trace it all back to this very hour, waves draining the light from the slim, hungry moon. Decades later, they would wonder what could have been had the lees simply turned back, had some sickness come upon the father manning the outboard motor, or some screaming fit befallen the youngest, forcing them to abandon the day's work and steer their small wooden craft home. Decades later, they would wonder if any difference could have been made at all. Or would past still coalesce into present, the uncle dying the way he did, an outcast burned to blackened bone, in a house some said was never his anyway. The kampong still destroyed, not swallowed whole by the waves in accordance with some angry god's decree, as the villagers had always feared, but taken to pieces and sold for parts by the inhabitants themselves. If the little boy, the sweetest, most sensitive boy in the kampong, would nevertheless have become a man who so easily bent the future to his will. Perhaps he would have. Perhaps this had nothing to do with the hour, the boat, the sea, and everything to do with the boy. But these questions could only be asked after the wars had been fought and the nation born, and the sea, once thought of as dependable, eternal, stopped with ton upon ton of sand. These questions would not occur to anyone until the events had fully passed them by, until there was nothing to be done, all were fossils, all was calcified history. For now, though, the year was still 1941, the territory of Singapore still governed by the Angmors as it had been for the past century, and the boy, very little, very afraid, still crouched in the back of his father's fishing boat. Lee Abun was seven, already a year late, as Hia liked to remind him. Hia, now nine, had taken his first trip on his sixth birthday, but while Hia at six had been a boy with plump tanned arms and strong calves like springs that could propel him over the low wooden fence at the perimeter of the kampong, Abun at seven was still cave-chested, with the scrawny limbs and delicate hands of a girl. Despite as much time spent in the sun as his brother, Abun's skin retained its milky pallor, as fine as the white flesh of an expensive fish steamed to perfection. Hence his nickname, Bawal. At the sound of his brother's voice, Abun sprang away from the boat's side. In the weak moonlight, the sea around them appeared as viscous black oil, roiling gently in the breeze. He shuddered to think what could be waiting beneath its surface. Scared, ah, Bawal. He clambered toward Abun, stepping over the ropes and nets that littered the floor of the small boat. He moved with a careless, threatening ease, like the foot-long monitor lizards that scuttled through the tall grass around the kampong. He grabbed Abun's shoulders, turning his torso out toward the sea. Wah, so brave. He had pushed his brother suddenly, as if to tip him out of the boat. The sea lurched up toward Abun's face and he clawed at the side, letting out small whimper. You know, he said, Pa never tell you everything about your first trip out. He never tell you about the night swim, huh? Thank you. I want to clap. I don't know if I'm allowed to <laughs> with the mic. <laughs> That's really wonderful. Thank you. Thanks I feel so like much. you've really made history come alive and you've made it personal, which is what's important. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've read about you know, land reclamation and people resettling. But with these characters, you can really feel their emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what gave you the idea to write about this topic? 
So I had always been interested in land reclamation, I think. Um, and I share this tidbit uh, as maybe the origin story. But I went to Nian Primary, which is built on reclaimed land, as you know, it's in Marine Parade. And I remember being in probably primary one and the teacher saying, you know, this floor that we're on right now, this used to be the sea. And for that kind of to be a quite you know, magical but also terrifying thing for a child to hear because you can't understand the concept of it, right? You know, you, the, the land seems so solid and this idea that it didn't used to be there quite recently or that you could make land where there wasn't land. Um, it just seemed a really uh, exhilarating um, but also frightening thing for a child to hear. Um, and I think that that seed of that feeling kind of persisted through my life in Singapore because you do see the landscape shift so much when you grow up here um, and probably less so less so in my generation certainly much more so in the past but even just living here in the 80s and 90s you know seeing the ways in which like buildings that you've grown up with or that you were so familiar with would get torn down really quickly or you know living in HDB flats um, you know the ways in which like when things get unblocked and then it just one day you walk by and everything's been raised and now um, it's just grass, right? So one of the flats I grew up in, you know, the government took it back and it um, they, they knocked them down. And I remember when I returned, it was just grass grown over. And the only thing, the only trace of the buildings were the trees that remained. And you could see the trees tracing the outline of the buildings. And that struck me as being a really poignant thing, right? That something that was so solid and so filled with the lives of various people was now gone and only, you know, in place the only remnant being these trees that surrounded what used to be there. Um, and so I think that I wrote this book very much out of that feeling of, you know, the the ambition and the, the belief that drives these changes and the desire for something better, the desire for progress, but the ways in which that is tinged with loss and grief um, and is sort of a double-edged sword in many ways, right? So land reclamation was the, the central idea, um, the driving force of the narrative in a way, because um, this family that we follow, Abun's family, grew up, you know, they live, they've lived on this coast for decades um, and then suddenly are faced with this enormous change that on the one hand promises so much, right, because, you know, they're being told, oh, you're going to live in these modern flats, you'll have water, electricity, good schools for your children, like it's going to be a sanitary, healthy environment. It's really exciting, right? On the other hand, they're being told, well, this, you know, the way of life that you follow for, for decades, for generations is that's it. It's gone. Right. And you just kind of have to deal with it. Isn't it great? You're going to get all these other things. Um, and so the book really dives into that dilemma and kind of the split in the community that that um, that uh, motivates that 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 causes um, through the over the course of these 30 years. Yes. So The Great Reclamation is your second novel mm-hmm. and it's your first historical fiction work. What do you find challenging or interesting about writing historical fiction? Um, I, I really loved writing it. I think because it was on a topic that I was interested in and, um, you should probably only write novels on things you're interested in because they take a very long time and, uh, require a lot of, you know, <laughs> involve a lot of ups and downs, many downs. Um, and so having the, you know, pig headed persistence to, to continue, even when you feel like your project is going nowhere and you'll never be able to figure it out. Uh, you, you have to be pretty interested in the subject matter. So I I loved doing the research for this book. I had to like force myself to stop researching because it was just stuff that 
I didn't really know or I knew the bare bones of it, you know, like the social studies version. Um, and I was, a, you know, I was a kid, so I wasn't paying attention to social studies. So I didn't even know that really. Um, but being able to dive into the the research and, you know, I read a lot of oral history interviews, you know, read lo- amazing resources on the Biblio Asia website um, and, you know, reading history books, looking at old photographs, stuff like that. Um, it was really fascinating to me to to learn all of this. Um, but then when it came to writing the book, I think the challenge was putting aside all of the facts and all the data that I had collected, which was quite overwhelming because there was so much of it, and to try and construct a coherent narrative that felt intimate and personal um, and filtered through the characters' perspectives. Uh, because I think ultimately that's what fiction's about, right? Fiction is about inhabiting someone's consciousness um, and that's the beauty of fiction, that it's, it's a story um, and that you can live live this reality that's been created um, through the character's eyes. So trying to forget about all of the facts instead of, I think there's a temptation when you've done that much work, you're like, well, I have to put all of it in, but doesn't make for a fun novel. You know, it's not a, it's not a textbook. It's ultimately a novel. It's a story. Um, and I want it to evoke emotion. So being able to balance that, including enough, but not too much, that was definitely challenging. I mean, it was very obvious to me that you spent a lot of time doing research. But how much time did you spend researching? I spent about a year just doing research. So just reading, just thinking um, and, you know, going, visiting places. I, I live in the US. Um, so when I come back, I would, you know, visit the sites. I would go to the East Coast. I would go to, um, I went out to Cheikh Jawa a few times just to see what an unspoiled coastline in Singapore might have looked like in the past. Um, and there is a detail from one of the signboards there that I actually kept in the book, which was that the seagrass, like the fields of seagrass, used to be so abundant that dugongs would come and graze around the coast, which to me was mind-boggling because, you know, the East Coast I grew up with was filled with ships and, like, the water was fairly murky. So to think that it used to look a different way, you know, was, like, quite... Yeah, it was quite surprising. Um, and so... I would do kind of, I guess you would call it like, yeah, kind of in the field research, like to go out and experience the places um, to refresh my memory. Um, And before I even started writing a single word, I think I spent about a year just doing that. And then while I was writing, obviously I had to then go back to, you know, refer to certain things. I would run into a roadblock and like then have to be like, oh, I need to write, read an entire book about like what happened in 1953 with XYZ, you know, stuff like that. So there was, there was then the research that happened during the writing. Um, And then during the revision process, again, going through that process and like, iteratively you know looking at like what I needed to fix or change or add more nuance to and usually that involves some form of research as well so probably five years of research the entire process of writing was also research. Wow that is a very long time and do you personally interview people for your research? I interviewed some people um, mostly family members um, and those were that was in the early stages where I was really just trying to get a lay of the land so I you know I interviewed my mom extensively she's the youngest of four so well four sisters and then she has brothers as well but so I interviewed all of my aunts as well Um, not really when I say interview I mean like we would have coffee and then I would ask them questions and they would kind of talk amongst themselves and I would take notes so it's very informal definitely not like oral history interviews Um, and then I relied heavily on the oral history interviews that were in the national archives that fortunately many of them are digitized and you can get them online so that was a really amazing resource to have. And in your long research process, 
Is there anything that surprised you about Singapore history? Um, I don't know that it's anything that surprised me so much as there were many striking details, I would say. Um, one of them that did make it into the book was that during the um, the land reclamation project in the early phases, um, they actually built a conveyor belt to move the sand from the Badok hill that they cut out of the ground that is today the reservoir um, to move that fill material, as they call it, to the coast, right? And I saw the photos of that and it looks like science fiction, like it doesn't, you know, it, it look. It, someone asked me, they said, well, your last book was speculative and now you're in historical fiction. Is that a big leap? And I was like, not really, because the history is almost science fictional, right? The way in which like that transformation was so audacious and so kind of, you know, like involved technology um, to that extent at that time. I think, it, yeah, when you look at the photos, it looks like something out of Blade Runner or something. You know, it's really fascinating. So I think that details like that really struck me, that the specifics of, you know, how things happened. I knew the the generalities. Like, you know, I learned in school, like, oh, there was land reclamation. It happened on the East Coast, um, the main facts. But then going into the details, which you'd need for fiction, that was really interesting to me. I feel like I almost hear the clank of mm. the conveyor belt. You can feel the dust in the air, mm-hmm. you know, you can mm-hmm. smell the salty sea. I mean, your description of the natural landscape and just the environment in general is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the research you did on environmental history? Yeah, um, well, there are amazing environmental historians working in Singapore. Um, I had the good fortune to link up with um, a professor at NUS uh, named Tim Bernard, who wrote, um, he's written a number of amazing books. One of them, um, which isn't directly linked to this, uh, but was an anthology titled Nature Contained. I don't know if you've read, yeah, so that's a that's a wonderful book with a series of essays um, about environmental history in Singapore um, and also speaking to other experts on like um, mangroves, the mangrove development and swamps that used to be here um, as well as uh, I, I spoke with a geography professor also at NUS about um, the shifting coastlines and one of the facts I learned there, which I didn't know, was that the famous temple in Teluk Aye, that is a sea temple. And the reason for that is the coast used to be there. And so they would bless the boats before they set off. But the sea is so, you know, but that's that's mind-boggling to me because it's like, you know, it's in the middle of the CBD now. Um, and so really speaking to kind of professors and um, other experts in this field um, about those uh, specifics was really helpful in my research. And one of the many things I appreciate about your book is that you showed the nuances of moving into HDB apartments. Mm-hmm. It's not black and white. Like mm-hmm. some characters like it, some don't, some move it, some move because of the children. Mm-hmm. And in your research, do you get a sense that it was a generational divide? Um, I think it was something that I not I that didn't only come up in my research, but also just speaking to family members. Um, you know, I think that I definitely heard about the excitement. So, you know, my mom would say she grew up on um, one of the, like, crowded, you know, wooden houses on the five-foot way, kind of, you know, growing growing up very close and very much in community with many people. And she said whenever someone on the street got an HDB flat, it would be like a big 
thing and the whole street would go and look at the flat when they moved in you know and and she knew all these details like oh um it comes with linoleum but if you can you should put tile or like the windows were a certain way but you could change them and then people would put like tops on the you know the kitchen window in order to like so all of these little bits of uh these like tidbits um of that experience and that was obviously much later that wasn't in the time period depicted in the book um that must have been in like the 70s or 80s versus the 60s but still I imagine the gist of the feeling must have been similar or even more so here because in the book this is the very beginning of that um and then again reading you know reading interviews um and listening to some of the recorded interviews this sense of um excitement but also a kind of ambivalence or fear you know this I knew I read about and also know older relatives who are afraid of lifts they don't want to take the lift they don't want to be high up right my mom only wanted to live on a low floor for a long time because they're not used to being that high up and then and then just extrapolating as a fiction writer right thinking about what it must have felt like when this is your reality your entire life your family has lived this way for so long and now suddenly you're plunged into a completely different reality um which arguably is the best setup for fiction because that is what fiction is about it's about characters being you know pushed out of their comfort zone um and how they deal with that so i think i tried to represent a range of experiences in the book as you mentioned very kindly um that some of the characters are totally for it they're like this is the way forward you know we're really excited and then other characters are um deeply against it they see it as a, a destruction of their way of life they feel it as a, a violence almost and they feel betrayed that everyone is going along with it um, and then you have a whole range of characters who are somewhere in between right where they sort of can't decide how they feel but either go along or don't go along for whatever personal reason um, and I think the reason why I wrote it that way is um, that I believe that politics are deeply personal that you know you never that as much as we like to believe we are, you know, fully objective human beings who are capable of coming to intellectual abstract conclusions in a vacuum, you know, it's just not true. When you talk to people, when you exist in the world, you see how your where you come from, what your family background is, your the path of your life, where you find acceptance, where you don't, all these things are things that shape our political beliefs, right? What we believe a society should look like, what we believe it means to live in a society with other people. Um, and the ways in which so much of that is really, really deeply rooted and almost inextricable that the characters aren't even aware of the ways in which they're shaped by this. Um, and so I wanted to have a wide range of voices of people who really, you know, came from different places and just either agreed, couldn't agree. And how you know, a lot of the story is like working that out, how they find their ways into, you know, either compromise or not compromise and what that does to them as individuals. I think you showed a lot of empathy in the book and even down to the way, um, down to the linguistics, right? You use Singlish and you use the terms garment, garwoman. Mm -hmm. And as a local reader, I find it so delightful to read these things, especially <laughs> garment, because it's kind of like how I pronounce it in my mind when yeah. I read it. So were you afraid of alienating your international readers? Um, I didn't think about it when I was writing the book. I think when I first wrote it, I came to it with the attitude that I was going to write the book that I wanted to write and that I wanted to read, that I would want to read as a Singaporean reader. And if I'm going to write about this subject, it has to be something that feels true to me, you know, as a, yeah, as someone who grew up here and who has family here and roots here. Um, and then I think in the revision process and after it sold for publication, then there were more of those conversations about like, okay, what is legible or understandable or what is, you know, more difficult? And then trying to, 
um, maybe find a balance and contextualizing certain things without necessarily um, making it feel like you're holding the hand of the reader too much or that you are explaining for an external audience. Um, so I was, it, these questions were very, very much front of mind when I was um, revising the book, certainly. Not so much the first draft. When I was writing it, I just kind of went for it and wrote it how, you know, I thought it should be written. Um, but I did, you know, as you observe much of the, um, there's a lot of Singlish in the book. Many of the words are untranslated. Um, and I, I think that's, I mean, as someone who reads widely across other cultures, you know, I grew up reading like British and French novels and there would be words in there that I didn't understand or have any context for and I figured it out. So I think readers are much smarter than we give them credit for, hopefully. And, you know, context does a lot when you're reading a book. Um, so I think, it, I think it's been fine. I think people have mostly been on board with it. This book portrays Singapore in a grassroots kind of way versus Crazy Rich Asians. And one feels a sense of affection for the protagonist, Abun, of course. And also the other minor characters, like mm -hmm. the shopkeeper. Um, you know, this is a book that helps someone understand how Singapore came to its own during the nation-building years. What informed you to write about Singapore in the way that you did? Um, I think... I don't know that I could have written any other way. Um... People ask me that a lot, that if it's like a response to the way Singapore's been presented in other ways, but but books take a very long time to write. And I will say that I had only really become aware of the Crazy Rich Asians representation with the movie, which came out when I had already finished writing this book. So it's not really in conversation as much as everything came out roughly the same time. Um, but I, I guess these are the people that I know. And so I can only write from that perspective like, I'm like I don't know anyone who's who's like a crazy rich Asian <laughs> I just I couldn't write about that um, I physically I just couldn't I just don't know about it so so in a way the the version here is the version that I grew up the Singapore that I grew up knowing hearing about reading about um, the people that I know in my everyday life that I meet um, you know even if they aren't exactly fishermen that they came from you know pretty humble beginnings like my grandfather was a a scrap collector and he actually would go out and like collect scraps from the street and sell them and you know and my, my grandparents were illiterate and then you know my parents generation were the first to go to school so this was very much the story of Singapore that that I I knew that I grew up with and so that naturally I guess found its way into the, the perspective of the book. So for our listeners who want to learn more about the period you write about can you recommend us three history resources that you've oh, wow. used? <laughs> okay so I'm going to name um, Singapore Biography by Mark R. Frost and Yume Balasingham Chow. Um, are they, do they have to be non-fiction? Anything. Be anything. Okay. And then Jeremy Tiang's novel, State of Emergency. I love that one. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and then another novel, kind of related, I guess, is um, Isa Kamari's Rawa. Yeah. And so all of that, I've actually, I have an extensive uh, acknowledgement <laughs> section for many of the books that inspired me and that I was... Uh, yeah, that I, I relied on. I can name many more, actually. But you said three, right? Maybe I name a few and then you can yeah, edit. Okay. <laughs> you I can go check. Um, oh, I also really enjoyed Lee's Lieutenants by Lamping Er and Kevin Tan. And then there was another one. Oh, The Politics of Landscape in Singapore by Brenda Yeo and Lily Kong. I really like that. That was fascinating. Um... My Grandfather's Road by Neil Kim Singh, which is kind of a memoir, a really short memoir that was about, also related to, to resettlement and land reclamation. 
yeah, and many, many more in the acknowledgements. Okay, and now we've come to the part on quick fire questions. <laughs> so don't think too much. Um, one word answer. Which historical figure would you like to have dinner with? Hmm. In the in Singapore or in all over anywhere in the you. world. Okay. Wow. This is terrible because I'm actually very bad at history. Like okay, that's in probably Singapore why then. I wrote in this Singapore. book. Yeah. <laughs> um in Singapore. Um I would love to have dinner with Maria Hertog. Mm. Yeah. Would you care? Who's not really a historical, I guess. She's because she was still alive for many years after. Yeah, I just wonder how she must have felt being a child, living through all of that, and how it must have been. I mean, I have watched documentaries actually interviewing her as an adult, and I know it was pretty traumatic. And so, yeah, I think I would have wanted to talk to her to hear about from her perspective, you know, what the the firestorm of media that we saw on the other side, you know, what the, it was like living through that as such a young person. Good answer. Most underrated or intriguing period of history? Hmm. I think the pre-colonial um, period is very interesting because I think a lot of what we learn about in school is, you know, that old modern Singapore started in 1819, right? But obviously there was a lengthy history and it was a pretty... A significant part of like many other empires and had like quite the big trading port and civilization you know going on before that, um, which actually the the National Museum does a good job of capturing now in its like permanent exhibition. Um, so yeah, that was really interesting for me to learn personally, um, and I would love to read more books set in like the pre-colonial period or like the fourteen fifteen century. I think that would be really fascinating. Cool. And which book is on your nightstand? I'm currently reading Daryl Thielen Lam's Lovelier Lonelier, um, and he's a he's a local author and books published by Epigram, I think. Um, it's a contemporary novel about uh, a group of friends and the way in which their lives intersect um, after the passing of a comet, an unexpected comet in the sky, and it's sort of slightly surreal, slightly hallucinatory. Um, but it's really it, it it's hard to say what it's about, but. Essentially, it is about friendship and love and the choices that that we make. Do you have a favorite genre? No, I don't. I read very omnivorously. Um, I love. I have a. I have an affection for nineteenth-century French novels. I would say, um, and this book was loosely based on the structure of the novel um, "The Red and the Black" by Stendhal which is about a young French boy growing up in the countryside who wants to model his life on Napoleon. History is... Fascinating. Biblioasia is... A valuable resource. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel, for your time. Thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed your book and it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm very honoured and appreciative to be here. I mean, you know, I hope this work gets into the syllabus for local literature and oh, that would be amazing. I'm rooting for you to win the Singapore Literature Prize oh, thank you thank you if you've enjoyed this episode subscribe to the podcast and the BiblioAsia newsletter